السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد ولا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمد عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners A few weeks ago we completed the commentary of Surah Al-Nasr Surah Ida Ja'a Nasrullahi Wal-Fatih Moving backwards from the end of the Holy Qur'an Today, hopefully, we will do the tafsir of Surah Al-Kafirun And then prior to, and then after that, Surah Al-Kawthar So, first of all, Surah Al-Kafirun Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قل يا أيها الكافرون لا أعبد ما تعبدون ولا أنتم عابدون ما أعبد ولا أنا عابد ما عبدتم ولا أنتم عابدون ما أعبد لكم دينكم وليدين This is one of the as is the case with most of the later surahs of the Quran right towards the end this is one of the more famous surahs of the Quran one that's known to most people, even by heart, most people have memorized this surah. It's famous for a number of reasons. It's one of those prescribed surahs to be read before retiring to bed, before going to sleep. It's one of the short surahs which is often read in the prayers. And in fact, there's a basis for this the say Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahmatullahi alayhi relates from Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma that he said I observed the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam for almost one whole month reciting surah qul ya ayyuhal kafirun in the first rak'ah and then Surah Qulhu Allahu Ahad in the second rak'ah of Fajr Salah. And this was one of the combinations of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in a number of different prayers. He would recite Surah Qul Ya Ayyuhal Kafirun in the first rak'ah and then Surah Qulhu Allahu Ahad in the second rak'ah. In fact, in one hadith, again, he joins the two. He combines the two surahs 
in mentioning their virtue. Imam Tirmidhi rahmatullahi alayhi relates a hadith from Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma that he said the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said Surat Qul Huwallahu Ahad is equivalent to one third of the Qur'an and Surat Qul Ya Ayyuhal Kafirun is equivalent to one quarter of the Qur'an. So in, in this hadith he mentions the reward of both being so virtuous that he equates it to one third of the Quran and being so virtuous that he equates it to a quarter of the Quran and he would combine these two surahs in many different prayers Imam Muslim rahmatullahi relates a hadith from Sayyidina Jabir ibn Abdullah radiyallahu anhuma that he said the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam recited قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ in the first rak'ah and then surat قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٍ in the second rak'ah of the two rak'at of tawaf when a person completes the tawaf it's sunnah of the Prophet wasallam to perform two rak'at of prayer as a kind of thanksgiving and an act of gratitude for the tawaf. And in those two raka'at after tawaf, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam read, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحْدٍ Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal relates that the pro- uh, he is uh, from Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma that he observed the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam for almost a whole month reciting قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحْدٍ قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ in the first raka'at and then قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحْدٍ in the second raka'ah of the two sunnats before Fajr. Not Fajr Salah, but the two sunnats before Fajr. And in another hadith, again recorded by Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his Musnad, from Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma, he says that, I must have seen the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam almost 25 times reciting قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ in the first raka'ah and قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٍ in the second raka'ah of the two raka'at before Fajr Salah, as well as قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ in the first raka'ah and then قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٍ in the second raka'ah of the two raka'at after Maghrib Salah. So Fajr, before Fajr, after Maghrib, Tawaf, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam will recite قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ and then قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٍ and in fact, he would do this even at night before retiring to bed, before sleeping. The, we learn that uh, Imam Tabarani relates that it was the personal practice of the Prophet wasallam that when he would retire to bed at night, he would, of course we learn from other hadith that he would recite the other surahs, but he would also recite قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ in its entirety. And when we, when we were doing the commentary of the last two surahs of the Qur'an, specifically قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ I explained in some detail that it's a sunnah and a practice of the Messenger ﷺ himself, as well as a prescribed sunnah for his ummah, that he has recommended his followers to recite 
قل يا قل قل معوذتين قل اعوذ برب الفلق قل اعوذ برب الناس ان قل هو الله احد as well as قل يا ايها الكافرون and i did explain in some detail that there was a distinction between قل يا ايها الكافرون and the other three surahs although most of us do uh, well, although it's a common practice to recite all four quls as they are known uh, before retiring to bed the reason for reciting qul ya ayyuhal kafirun is actually distinct from the reason for reciting the other three qul huwallahu ahad qul a'udhu birabbil falq qul a'udhu birabbin nas those three are mainly for protection whereas qul ya ayyuhal kafirun as imam ahmad ibn hanbal and others relate a man came to the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and said to him o messenger of allah prescribed prescribe a deed for me that I may do and adhere to. And the Prophet ﷺ recommended that he recite, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ He said to him, before you sleep, recite, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ And then he gave the reason. He said, فَإِنَّهَا بَرَاءَةٌ مِّنَ الشِّرْكِ For it is a declaration of disassociation, freedom and innocence from idolatry. So, although we recite all four together, the specific reason given by the Messenger وسلم, for reciting قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ is that, although it can serve as a means of divine protection, the specific reason is, إِنَّهَا بَرَاءَةٌ مِّنَ الشِّرْكِ as the words of the Hadith are, it's actually a declaration of freedom, disassociation, and detachment, and innocence from shirk, from idolatry and associating partners with Allah. So this was not only the practice of the messenger himself, but this is what he prescribed for his ummah to recite قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ before retiring uh, in the two raka'at of fajr. In fact, it was his practice to recite in the two raka'at of fajr before sunnah, uh, the sunnah two raka'at before fajr as well as after maghrib. So undoubtedly, it's one of the short surahs of the Qur'an, very virtuous, and these are just some of the practices of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa in relation to this surah, as well as some of its virtues. Now, when was this surah actually revealed? And what is the import of its contents? Well, Allah says, let me translate the surah first. قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the merciful. قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ Say, the address is to the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ Say, O kafirun, disbelievers, لَا أَعْبُدُ مَا تَعْبُدُونَ I do not worship that which you worship. وَلَا أَنْتُمْ عَابِدُونَ مَا أَعْبُدُ And nor, do, nor are you worshippers of what I worship. وَلَا أَنَا عَابِدٌ مَا عَبَدْتُمْ And nor am I one to worship what you worship. وَلَا أَنْتُمْ عَابِدُونَ مَا أَعْبُدُ And nor are you ones to worship what I worship. لَكُمْ دِينُكُمْ وَلِيَدِينَ For you is your religion, and for me is my religion. Now, this is one of the earliest surahs of the Qur'an. And it was revealed... In the early years of the Prophet Wasallam's mission in Mecca. And the backdrop to the revelation of the surah 
is that, if you recall, I've explained in some detail about the different stages of the Prophet's relationship with the inhabitants of Mecca uh, in the 13 years of his mission and prophethood. So from the 40th year of his life, when he received the first revelation of the Qur'an, till approximately the 53rd year of his life, when he emigrates to Medina. In those approximately 13 years, lunar years, the Prophet Wasallam's mission, his manner of preaching, and especially his relationship with the people of Mecca, went through various changes and stages. And in the early days, till approximately fourth to the till approximately the fifth year of his prophethood, the Prophet relationship, though tense, was still such that there was a great deal of communication between the Messenger and the people of Mecca. And hitherto at least, although there were taunts jibes and jeers and insults. At least in the very early years, the matter hadn't become so problematic that there was physical persecution of the followers, which resulted later, such as actual imprisonment, torture, even murder. But this surah, Surah Al-Kafirun, is related to those early years. And as you may recall from various hadith, the Quraysh approached the Prophet ﷺ with a number of offers on different occasions. They offered him the rule of Makkah al-Mukarramah. They offered him wealth, even women. They even insultingly suggested to him that if you are possessed by demons, then we will procure the services of the best witch doctors in the land to cure you of your demonic possession. So they made a number of different offers and the backdrop to the revelation of this surah is one similar offer, where it wasn't a personal offer of rule or wealth or women or a cure. Rather, on this occasion, a number of the Quraysh approached him, and this delegation included some of the chieftains of the Quraysh. And they said to him, O Muhammad, we demand of you that you cease insulting our gods and our idols. And that you desist from speaking ill of them. And in fact, we will go one step further. We can come to an agreement. And the agreement is that you worship, we worship your God, along with you for a whole year. And then the following year, 
we will worship our gods, but you will also join us in that worship for a whole year. And so we will alternate. One year, we will collectively worship our idols. And then the following year, we will collectively worship your God and not the idols. So according to many narrations, this was actually the backdrop to the revelation of the verse. So we have to understand the surah in that context. This was a specific request of compromise on the part of a specific number of the chieftains of the Quraysh. And it was a very specific offer that the compromise that they offered to the Messenger was the alternating of worshipping Allah and the idols from year to year. So it was in response to that request that the Prophet received the revelation of this surah. And in it Allah says, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ Say, O disbelievers. لَا أَعْبُدُ مَا تَعْبُدُونَ I do not worship that which you worship. Which means now, in the present. That I do not worship your idols and your goddesses. وَلَا أَنْتُمْ عَابِدُونَ مَا أَعْبُدُ And nor do you currently worship what I worship. I, our religions, our method of worship, our objects of worship are completely different. I worship Allah exclusively, making singular, exclusive, and one for Him, His religion and my worship. And you, you worship the idols and you associate partners with Allah. So currently, Our method, our manners of worship, our methods of worship are completely divergent. I do not worship what you worship and you do not worship what I worship. Now, وَلَا أَنَا عَابِدٌ مَا عَبِدٌ And nor am I one to worship. The second, if you recall, if you can tell, the, 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 there are four verses or two sets of verses. And they seem repetitive. So the first set of verses says, the first set consisting of two verses says, I do not worship what you worship and you do not worship what I worship. That's the first set. And then the second set immediately thereafter, again of two verses, says, and I am not one to worship what you worship and you are not ones to worship what I worship. So apparently this seems like mere repetition but it's not in the first set of verse uh, in the first set of two verses the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is denying the current state of affairs as far as worship is concerned right now currently i do not worship what you worship and you do not worship what i worship and then moving on in the next set of verses the Prophet ﷺ offers a comprehensive explanation of not just his current state, but his current state of mind and heart, of devotion and of conviction. That I am not one to worship, i.e. I'm not even disposed to that. I'm not even inclined to that. I'm not even disposed to that. My character, 
my very being, my mind, my whole essence is such that I am not one to ever worship what you are worshipping. And similarly, he says to them, so it's not just related to the current, it's related to the past, the current and the future. That his very essence, his very being, his very character precludes the possibility of him ever worshipping the idols. And then he actually addresses these specific few chieftains of the Quraysh and says to them, And nor are you ones who will who and nor are you ones to worship what I worship. Meaning these few specific chieftains of the Quraysh had gone so far in their disbelief, in their opposition to the Messenger وسلم, in their antagonism towards the revealed Quran, that they had become blinded, deaf, dumb, and blind, impervious to the truth. Their senses had become so dulled, as far as the Qur'an was concerned, that when they heard the very verses, the very same verses that were revealed to the Messenger wasallam, that were read and recited to many different people, that same, those same verses had a most dramatic, radical, and transforming effect on the other listeners. Whereas to the same, to these few chieftains of the Quraysh, they had no effect whatsoever. They just simply passed over them, almost bounced off them. Even though they were in the same audience, they understood the same language, they heard the same words, but they were totally impervious to any effect of these revelations. Whereas others around them, were transfixed, transformed. They were totally overwhelmed. And that attitude is explained in many different verses of the Qur'an in which Allah says, Allah describes their hearts and ears being sealed. And that even when the Messenger recites the verses of Allah to them, there is a barrier between the Messenger and them. So because of this, attitude of theirs, they're, becoming, they're having become deaf, dumb and blind. The Prophet ﷺ is telling them, And nor are you ones to worship what I worship. Meaning, even though these were the early years of prophethood, these were the early years of his mission in Mecca, he was already prophesizing to the prophesizing to these select few chieftains of the Quraysh, that your very being is such that you can never be disposed to worshipping what I worship, i.e. you will never become believers in what I believe and what I convey to you. And that was the truth. For all of those addressees of these verses of the Qur'an, they remained in determined opposition to the Messenger wasallam for many, many years. And even though their own family members believed, one of the people who approached the Prophet wasallam and actually offered this compromise was Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira. And Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira, his sons embraced Islam. One of them was Khalid ibn al-Walid radiallahu So even though their own family members eventually embraced, they themselves remained obstinately opposed to the Qur'an 
until they left this world in a state of disbelief. So these verses were specifically addressed to a few chieftains of the Quraysh. That was the original context of the Qur'an in which this, these verses were revealed. So the messenger says to them, I, am not, I do not worship what you worship, and you do not worship what I worship, and nor am I one to worship what you worship, and nor are you ones to worship what I worship. This denial was to a specific group of people. And then the surah ends with the words, لَكُمْ دِينُكُمْ وَلِيَدِينُ For you is your religion, and for me is my religion. This was the original context, and we have to understand the surah in that particular context. And before I continue, to I'll end with this, and we'll move on to the tafsir of the next surah, which is moving backwards, surah al-Kawthar. I'd just like to mention something about the word al-Kafirun. Without doubt, the translation and the meaning of the, of the words kafirun is unbelievers or disbelievers. But this is actually a secondary translation. And originally, I mentioned this because people... The word kafirun or kafir is portrayed as being very insolent, insulting and demeaning and it has become controversial but the Quran is replete with the words stemming from the root kafara throughout the Quran, the Quran is replete with words related to the word kufr so whether it's kafirun, kufr, kuffar kafara and all the related forms and stems of the word. But what does kafara actually mean, along with all of its related forms and stems? Well, in reality, kafara, the root letters of this word, just means to conceal. And that's the original meaning of the word kafara. And in many verses of the Qur'an, the word kafara and its related stems and forms are used with absolutely no connection to disbelief, unbelief. And it it actually means ingratitude. So again, that's a secondary translation of ingratitude. Original meaning isn't even ingratitude. That's a branch secondary translation because the original meaning of gafara is to conceal to hide to obscure from view this is why in arabic the night is called gafir night is also called gafir a cloud is called gafir because it covers and it conceals and it shelters and hides a farmer is called kafir. In fact, in a verse of the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah gives a parable of worldly life. And in describing the reality of worldly life in this very long and elaborate verse, Allah says, 
that the reality of worldly life is like rain. Ghaith, like rain. A'jab al-kuffar whose vegetation, either the vegetation of this downpour of rain, pleases. A'jab pleases. Pleases who? Al-kuffar. And what does the word al-kuffar mean? Again, it's a very specific form. And in fact, this form in itself has become controversial, the term kuffar. But where it's used in the Qur'an, al-kuffar anabatu, what does it actually mean? Here. It means a farmer's. Like rain whose vegetation pleases the kuffar, meaning the farmers, plural of kafir. So when there is a good downpour of rain and the farmers have planted their seeds and they are waiting eagerly in anticipation for rain from the heavens to water their crops and irrigate their lands and produce a good harvest, when it does eventually fall, this pleases them immensely. And that's the meaning of kuffar here in the Qur'an. It refers to farmers. Why is a farmer called a kafir? Plural kuffar. Because he hides and conceals the seeds in the ground. Clouds are called, A cloud is called a kafir. The night is called a kafir. The farmer is called a kafir. And in fact, <coughs> one more thing. <coughs> All languages are ultimately related. English, German, Dutch, the Northern European languages are all originate from the from Old Germanic, from the Old Germanic language. And that's why they're all very similar. And if you ever study the etymology of words, you can see how the original word leaps from language to language, from one language to the other. There are countless words, and all languages borrow, import and export, borrow and lend to each other. Even Arabic. Arabic has provided many terms to other languages. But, equally so, many words have been imported into into the Arabic language. And without doubt... Uh, some of those imported words from other languages into Arabic have been used in the Qur'an. So, of course, they, are, they were used by the Arabs even before the revelation of the Qur'an. And in a way, it could be argued that the words have now become Arabic. But their origins lie outside the Arabic language. And they are examples of the Qur'an. We don't need to go into them. But similarly, there are many words, even in English that are very similar sounding to Arabic, simply because they share a common root. One of them, for instance, is... Uh, this is just a wild ex- one or two wild examples. Uh, this isn't an exhaustive list of examples, it's just exemplary. Uh, death, mot. In Arabic, it's known as mot. And with mot in English, you have lots of words. Mortuary, mortem, mortis... Rigor mortis, post mortem, mortuary, because mot. In fact, another very clear word, earth in Arabic is ard. Throughout the Quran, ard. And ard and earth undoubtedly share a common root. Now, having said that, there are many other examples. Let's look at the word kufr. In Arabic, you have 
consonants and symbols. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, you have consonants, the original root letters, and the vowels. And the vowels are never written. They are denoted by various diacritical marks. But in Arabic, root letters are most important. The vowels are never written. Now, if you look at the word cover in English, take out the vowels. O and E, cover, C-O-V-E-R. Take out the word, take out the vowels. O and E, what are you left with? Kavara. Now, I'm not playing verbal gymnastics. <laughs> this is a fact. And if any of you want the reference, cut some time ago, almost two years ago, I actually read this in a unique work by... Hamiduddin Farahi. Hamiduddin Farahi was an outstanding scholar of India of the past century. In fact, uh, prior to that. And he was an absolute genius when it came to languages. And he, unfortunately, he left the world before he could complete some of his unique works. But some of his unique contributions to the study of the Arabic language is a book, one of his unique contributions is a book called Mufradatul Qur'an. The words of the Qur'an, or singular words of the Qur'an. And in this book, he's traced the, he's traced the roots and the origins of many of the words of the Qur'an. But it's incomplete, unfortunately, he couldn't complete it. But even the little that he has done, a number of researchers have completed dissertations in their universities, and more than one of them has actually compared some of the works on the vocabulary of the Qur'an throughout the centuries. And they've come to the conclusion that Hamiduddin Farahi's Work, even though it's incomplete and very brief and contains only a few words, is actually better than any of the Arab masters of Arabic vocabulary in the Quran over the past centuries. And one of the reasons is that he was highly intelligent, gifted for languages, and he, he mastered, he was from India, so he was fully conversant in the Urdu language, Urdu, Hindi, he mastered Persian, mastered Arabic, English, and then whilst he was in India, and remember this was the time during the British rule, one of the one of the professors from the UK uh, was over there, and he requested Hamiduddin Farahi, since he was a master of English as well, he requested him to teach him Arabic. And the professor was actually a professor of Hebrew. So Hamiduddin Farahi agreed on the condition that he would teach the English professor Arabic on the condition that the English professor, who was actually a professor of Hebrew, would teach him Hebrew. And the, he agreed gladly. And as he was teaching him Arabic, he learnt Hebrew from him and mastered it in a very short while. So... When he worked on the vocabulary of the Qur'an, he was able to draw his knowledge and expertise from 
his mastery of all of these different languages, Urdu, Persian, Hindi, Sanskrit, Arabic, English, and Hebrew. And most importantly, Hebrew and Arabic because of their uh, Semitic origins. And he is the one who actually goes at length to explain the word kafara as being very common, not just the root word of kafara being common, not just in English and Arabic, but other languages also. Khairan. So that's just uh, a few, just a few words on the word kafir. And when it, that's the original meaning of kafara to conceal, to cover. Those of you who have ever studied fiqh, this fold in the books of fiqh is known as gawr. Any of you who have studied the Arabic books of fiqh will recall the phrase, And it's permissible to do sajda on the gawr of his imamah, his turban. What does gawr mean? Gawr means fold. When you fold something, you cover it. Now this, the, the root word is not kafara, it's kawara. It's not kafara, it's kawara. So, when the sun is folded. And when you fold something, what do you do? You cover part of it and you cover whatever's under it. You conceal something in the fold. What this, this isn't kafara, but what this shows you is again the relationship between the root letters of kafara, kawara, whether you pronounce it fur or were, whether it's in Arabic or in, in many other languages, the root letters denote concealment, covering, hiding. Now that we know that the root word of kafara is related to covering and concealing, and hiding. What does it mean in the context of belief and disbelief? Well, it simply means that a believer, a mu'min, recognizes that his life, his being, his essence, nay, his very existence, are all owed to God. And therefore, he believes in his duty to show gratitude for the gifts of God continuously and to remain in the service of his creator, his or her creator, out of gratitude for the gifts that God has bestowed on him or her. The gift of life, the gift of existence, and the gratitude of that gift is service throughout one's life. That's a real meaning of ibadah. Ibadah as worship, again, is a secondary meaning. The original meaning of ibadah is service. And anyone who recognizes that duty, that obligation, and then engages in the fulfillment of that lifelong obligation of showing gratitude to God for the gift of life, for the gift of existence, and of serving God, that person is a mu'min, a believer. That person is an abd, someone who serves. And in the terminology of Islam, in the terminology of the Qur'an, in the terminology of the Hadith, the prophetic words, anyone who fails or refuses to recognize that gift of life from God 
and who fails or refuses to recognize their obligation of offering gratitude to God for the gift of life and remain in God's service for the rest of one's life. That person is one who expresses ingratitude, who conceals the gift of God, who is ungrateful. And since they are ungrateful for the gift of life, of existence, of essence, of belief, then they are termed ungrateful. And that's where the word originates, kafir. So, it's not a term of hate. It's not a derogatory term. Of course, there will always be the otherness. So whether you use the word term kafir, or whether you use the word unbeliever, disbeliever, non-believer, or we come up with any other term, there will always be the otherness. There will always be a distinction between one who believes and one who doesn't believe. A Muslim and a non-Muslim. A mu'min and a non-mu'min. There will always be a distinction. But, and that's one of the things we have to live with. We live with distinctions all the time. We live with distinctions between citizens of different countries, between followers of different faiths. Every member of a religious fraternity, every follower of a religion, will recognize that they have certain choices, they have certain beliefs, they have certain modes of living, they have certain methods of worshipping, and they have a way of life, which are all distinct from another person's. And therefore there is a distinction between them. No matter what names they give, the idea is tolerance. To tolerate these differences, to respect these differences, to respect the right to these differences. But as far as distinction and otherness is concerned, this is a fact of life. There will always be this otherness. And that's true for all religions, for all philosophies, all walks and ways of life. All faiths, not just Islam. And every faith, every ideology, every religion has its vocabulary which distinguishes between adherents and followers of that ideology, faith and religion and the non-adherents. No matter what word you may use, what terminology or phraseology you may use, ultimately there will always be a distinction and there will always be otherness. But I explain all of this just to show that the word kafir shouldn't be regarded as being derogatory and insulting. Ultimately, it's the manner, it's the method, and it's the mentality behind the usage of such words which will lend it that, which will ultimately lend it that force of intensity or that force of being insulting. Otherwise, whatever word you use, it always denotes otherness and distinction. So originally the word gafir simply means to conceal. And the word disbeliever is actually a tertiary translation. It's a tertiary meaning. The primary meaning is to cover. Gafara means to cover. The secondary meaning of gafar is to be ungrateful. And the tertiary meaning of kafar, stemming from ingratitude, is disbelief. 
So it's not even a secondary meaning. One could regard it as being a tertiary, tertiary meaning, a third meaning. Anyway, I end with this. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand the words of Allah. Sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulih nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alkotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alkotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.